0: Hello, you're listening to the National Theatre Podcast. I'm Sam Sedgman, and today we're talking about masculinity and asking, what does it mean to be a man? Now, I am a man, but I still feel completely unqualified to answer this question. There are so many different ideas out there about what masculinity is all about. It's something we all have a perspective on, whether we're a man or not. So today, we're talking about this question with a bunch of interesting people who all have something to say about it. Through our conversations, we're going to explore masculinity and its intersection with other kinds of identity, most notably race and sexuality. We'll be speaking to poet and playwright Inua Ellams about why going to the barbershop lets men open up about themselves. And we'll ask a group of male actors about how the roles they've played through their careers have led them to question what it means to be a man. But first, one notable exploration of masculinity that we've seen in the last 12 months has been the film Moonlight, which won Best Picture at the Oscars this year. If you've not seen it, it's a beautiful drama about the coming of age of a young man growing up in the Liberty City neighborhood of Miami, struggling with his identity and his sexuality as he moves from child to teenager to man. The film was directed by Barry Jenkins and was based on a semi-autobiographical play written by renowned playwright Terrell Alvin McCraney, who came to the National this summer to direct a reading of Wig Out, one of his plays. I spoke to Terrell about some of the questions the film brings up around masculinity, around race and sexuality, but I started by asking him where he was in his life when he began to write the first version of the play that would eventually become Moonlight.
1: I wrote it uh, in 2003 after the death of my mother in the summer before I went to the Yale School of Drama for playwriting. When I was home in Miami um, and in Georgia after the burial of my mother, the I was trying to c- put pieces together back and forward about who I had become and why I was sort of where I was graduating from school, what road I didn't take in terms of who I the, in terms of the offers given to me, um, as a young man of color growing up in Liberty City, um, there was a, a, a drug dealer in my life early in my life that, um, was very good to me as a, he was, he really taught me what a person should be like in the world, um, regardless of what their occupation or, or perceived occupation, um, is. And I think one of the things I just wanted to do was put together the sort of, uh, turning points that kind of led me to where I was or could have led me, lead me to where I was at 23. Um, and that's how in Moonlight Black Boys Look Blue came about. I think everybody who watches television or film or sees any art wants to, uh, innately see something that reflects them. And I think what people of color and, and queer people particularly, uh, do is they can they can sort of begin to glom on to the bits of humanity that are have universal strains and everything so you know for instance i watched the talented mr ripley about uh 17 times Um, it's still one of my favorite movies particularly because of the shape-shifting that um tom ripley does and i think a lot of people um, like myself could identify with that although i didn't go to princeton uh I also wasn't friends with you know uh wealthy people back in the forties, but i think I think again you begin to see characters and begin to extrapolate as much as possible that that pretends to your life.
0: It's really interesting to hear you talk about the shape shifting and and how we all adjust different parts of our identities depending on on what kind of circumstance we're in certainly the the thing that's most obvious in in, in the film moonlight is is that pressure to perform masculinity, to feel, uh, to, to present yourself to the outside world as hardened and a solid masculine individual. But of course, there's so many different other parts of ourselves, aren't there, that we, that we adjust and feel that we need to present to the world. I remember reading an interview that you did in, I think it was the Evening Standard, where you said you still feel like you're playing a part. I wondered what you meant by that. Yeah,
1: there are definitely parts I still play. I still, you know, when I'm on Public radio, or you know, nationally syndicated radio. I try to speak as eloquently as I can, um, and not detract from the fact that I do have um, some poise about myself. At the same time, this is what I normally talk like if I'm trying to be my most intimate self. Um, and I don't think it's necessary to give <laughs> the public my my most intimate self at all times. The example is the class distinction going into um, a, high, a high school with the ability to um, to shapeshift or to blend into a society that comes from much more access than you do, um, to be able to change the way you speak, um, to be able to drop mannerisms that, that depict you as poor, um, I could identify with that. And I think many people do that across color, queer, and class lines. And I think we, we oftentimes in art hope that we can see that representation reflected back on us. The, the thing about parts and any good actor will tell you is that um, that they don't, you know, <laughs> that they don't necessarily pull from outside of themselves. They're just pulling at parts of themselves that were per- currently unknown. Um, I stopped acting simply because of that. I don't think I have a lot of parts I can pull out, but there are a few in there that I that parts of me that I can bring to the fore if necessary, um, specifically because there are times where you're you're mortality is being threatened. And I think all human beings have that ability. Some, some have more chameleon-like features than others. What's, in, what's interesting to me is that I feel like people who are, who specifically identify at the cross-sections or the intersectionality of queer and of color, um, know this to be true of themselves and oftentimes wondered about their counterparts who may be queer and white or just white um, in a different cre- and on different class levels. And surely the thing, the thing that's always uh, staggeringly funny to me is that these questions come to people like me often, but are not to other people. I'm sure the president of the United States does not speak the way he speaks in public and the way he speaks in private. In fact, we know that to be true, even across, you know, color lines, across ca-
0: class lines. There's a double consciousness. There's a public self and private self. As I mentioned, Terrell was at the National this summer to direct a reading of his play Wig Out as part of our season of Queer Theatre. Wig Out is a play steeped in the culture of drag and drag balls. The house
2: of Diabolique is hosting a Cinderella ball. Say what? Say how? Oh, she thinks she's slick. Then you know me well, ancient one. You bitches almost didn't make it out alive from that last ball. What was
0: now, that? if you don't know what a drag ball is, it's a kind of contest between different groups of drag performers called houses. Houses are a kind of alternative family for young queer people, mostly black and Latino, often homeless, for who the house offers a shelter and a safe space. In a ball, different houses walk against each other in different categories, judged on things like how they look, dress, how they dance, their attitude and most importantly, their realness, how much they embody the thing that they're supposed to be impersonating. That thing can be anything from a high fashion model to a businessman going to a meeting. I asked Terrell how he became interested in the ball scene and when wig out first started to take shape.
1: I think I wrote the first sketches of it my first year in grad school when um, we were being asked to write about, you know, just intimate relationships that we had Um, and I remember I had a relationship with a young woman in Miami. Um, and when we, when we first got involved, we were both male. Um, and she introduced me to the drag scene and throughout that process, she began to transition. And as she transitioned, um, I found myself, uh, trying to catch up and figure out what was happening. And eventually she, she broke up with me saying that, you know, um, she wanted to be with a man who wanted to be with a woman, which at the time I thought I could understand. But even now I'm sort of going, could that have really been a possibility for me? Could I have, like, figured that out in the moment?
3: I, I, I mean, like, 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 are you transitioning? Is, is that rude?
1: Hell yeah.
4: <laughs> I'm non-conforming. What's wrong?
0: Maybe I shouldn't go with you.
1: You scared to walk out with me like this?
0: I'm just not used to it yet. Yet? Ooh.
1: (laughs) I did not know the
5: black
3: boys could blush.
1: You like me. No, I don't.
3: Yes, you do.
1: But I I was lucky she made the decision for me Um, in that I just she said that I didn't have the capacity to sort of pick that up and at at seventeen, sixteen, I'm sure that's true. <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> I, I sure I, I sure I, I'm sure I thought I was stronger than I actually was. I was still coming into my own understanding of what my queerness was. Um and I think it was imperative for for both of us to spend time rooting ourselves in, in who we are. Now I can fully say I could have figured it out. But back then I think um i I just don't think I had the the sort of uh mental space psychic space to to mm. know what I was actually signing up for or getting into, and so i just i I remember being in those houses I remember being around those houses the 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 categories and trying to figure out my way through it and then watching this person that I really cared about um sort of figure their route through the scene um and also you know seeing friends disappear you know seeing friends. Um, you know, become fully engaged. I had classmates who, um, you know would do these drag balls at night and come to class in the morning and be tired and exhausted and still have glitter under their eyes. I mean, it was just one of those things that was you know uh it, it it meant a lot to us. It meant a lot to the people around it um and and though I was never at the heart of it, i I always knew that it was something that made me proud that was a part of my culture psychically and spiritually this is a culture that is often robbed everything from the words shade and tea and reading and from you know even from the way their bodies physically move in space through vogue have been stripped from this culture and people don't even know that where they come from you know you'll see the most quote-unquote straight hetero um, anti-queer people saying things like oh no shade and I was like, do you even know that that originated from the mouths of drag queens and, you know, the 80s in a, in a culture that you, you know, sort of are, are, are denigrating? And most people don't. And I think that's the that's the reason why the culture within the ball scene shifts so much, because it's constantly trying to stay ahead of the game in order to keep its cachet, in order to keep its power within itself. If it's it's important because there's something exclusive about it. Rather than think of this as a subculture, think of this as the place where so much culture has been birthed. One of the things that was really important to me when we did this piece is that I tried to reach out to the people in the ball scene, let them know that theater, um, the theater that they make and the theater that they're a part of, should be a place where they can celebrate. Um, and oftentimes it's not, of course. Oftentimes it's the tickets are too expensive, <laughs> the, the the venue it feels uh, institutionalized and othered. Um, and, and feels like it'll give a prying eye. But there was this one time where you know we had a ball night and the tickets were free for anybody who was a part of a house. And it just became, it was something else. It was like, we couldn't contain the amount of give and take that was happening. And I think for me, that, that always signaled something. That always signaled a moment of, of shift and change for me that I, I needed to focus as much as I possibly could on who is the audience and how to make sure that there's a call and response happening rather than a sort of zoological or uh, archaeological look into someone else's culture.
0: Masculinity isn't just something internal, a sense of ourselves. It's something we present to other people, Like many parts of our identity, it's defined as much by how we behave towards others as what we think of who we are. It's a dance between the two, just like the interplay between an actor and the audience. So it stands to reason that the people we're around and the environment we're in have an impact on how men behave, especially when that environment is all men. Now, I haven't done extensive research into how men behave in all male spaces, but I do know a writer who has.
5: Okay, um, my name is Inoa Ellams. I'm primarily a poet, though um, I also write plays. I'm a playwright.
0: Tell us about Barbershop Chronicles and briefly what it's about and what is it.
5: Um, Barbershop Chronicles is a play that I that that um I stole. Um, Hang on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me come to that. So okay, I didn't steal it, but I. I had conversations with men in barbershops in their safe spaces, and I recorded some of those conversations. Um, feels like a day in the life of six, seven barbershops, six of which are on the African continent, and the one in London is the main strand running through, and um, they're all watching the same football match.
0: Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. I have questions. Yes. What happens when you go into a barbershop, and you say, hey, can I put you in a play? Yeah. Like, what's that first contact conversation like?
5: So what I initially did was introduce myself to the barber and say, hey, I'm a writer. And barbers sort of broker the relationship between myself, this wandering bohemian poet writer, and their clients, saying, hi, this is Inouye from London. Is writing a play. Do you mind if he records our conversations? And some clients um, refused to. And then, then I didn't record some. Um, said they were happy as long as I changed their names in a play, and then I did. Some just laughed at my dictaphone as if it was a pebble before the unstoppable might of the intellectual paresse, and just didn't give a fuck. <laughs> they were like, whatever, do what you want, just let me talk, man, what's wrong with you? And um, yeah, so we kind of arranged, but the barbers were the key. They were um the cultural lubricants. They kind of made everything happen, really.
0: What role do you think those spaces play? Because there's kind of two things going on here, isn't there? There's there's uh, It's an all male space mm-hmm. and these are specifically black male spaces as yeah. well. What role do you think that plays on a kind of personal level for the people that go there and also on a kind of societal level as well?
5: So in barbershops, there's a sense that when you go into those places, you can be yourself and um, members of the public who may not be of your culture. Um, wouldn't look at you weirdly for doing things that you don't really do. Therefore there's this sense of it being a safe space to be yourself. And I think those are the the cultural spaces that barbershops inhabit and they offer to, to black men. Also, when I think about spaces where men gather to show strong emotions, historically they have been hostile to men of color. When I think of places like football pitches, football stadiums, you mm. know, they were just horrendous. You know, everything from how um the audiences, the spectators, treat other spectators of color to how they treated um, footballers, sometimes footballers on their own team. You know, just being in those spaces uh, meant that I think people of color o- almost had a double thing, or just refused to go there flat. You're letting him
4: cut your hair. Why not? Oh, don't no trust him. What's it though? I'm telling
6: you. What?
3: So last week, it's his birthday, he gets this bottle of rum, yeah? Stop going on about this. We never buy it, it was given to me. Big, huge. He came with the rum, put the rum on the table for everyone to see. So I'm thinking tonight I'm gonna drink. It's my boy's birthday. Mm-hmm. This guy finishes work, puts the rum in his bag,
4: and leaves. You heart- should heart- have buy me heart- one. you,
3: you heart- heart- It's your birthday. Exactly. You buy me one. You're the host. You provide the drink. That's
4: how Jamaicans do it. To be
3: honest, it never crossed my mind. It mean, did not cross your mind. Africans
4: not drink. Oh, what? Oh, you're not interested. Hey, how many of you go pub? Right. <laughs> These are not covered. You make but Africans not. That's why you full up the barbershop. This is your pub. You know. No, no, no,
0: no. no, no. Hey, what hey, were your you um, experiences right, of, why, I guess, having a haircut, but barbershops growing up?
5: Well, um, when I was in Nigeria, I left when I was 12 years old. My father and I would go to barbers and get our hair cut. So that's how I was first introduced into those spaces. Then we left, I came to London, and money was really tight at home. So I began to cut my father's hair, and he began to cut mine. So they, they kind of just fell away from my world experience. Yeah. So it
0: was, the, it was the play that drew you back into those spaces? Yeah, yeah, and definitely. of having like a reason to go in other than yeah. I need a haircut.
5: Yeah, but the thing is, I'm balding, so I, I I don't need a haircut <laughs> <laughs> most of the time. So...
0: When so you re- didn't explain <laughs> that you just took your hat off like a massive reveal? <laughs> yeah. It was such a moment. And look, I'm balding. Look, I'm
5: balding. <laughs> so when I was in barbershops, I couldn't go ask him for a haircut. Because... <laughs> <laughs> so at best, I'd ask them to trim or keep on shaving when, when I had like little outgrowths. But there were just not enough to legitimize my reason there if it was purely a, a transactional one. So uh, yeah, just really, the the play the play was the reason why I could be in those spaces, yeah.
0: You said, um, I watched your TED talk that you did in Brixton. I think it's a quote in the play as well, mm-hmm. is one of the clients you interviewed said, um, to be a man is to not be yourself.
5: Yeah, that was in one of the earlier drafts
0: of the play, yeah. I really want you to unpick what you think of that and where that comes from.
5: That was so hair-raising when he told me that. I just I just wanted to sit down and hug him and I think I did.
0: Where were you by the way, where was this?
5: This was a barbershop in Battersea. Right. and. The, the the person i have a conversation with now is a really well-known actor right now he's done incredible work over since that having that conversation and i remember him telling me that and, and just being completely humbled that he could he could be so open and and how that opens the floodgates to really think about mental health and black masculinity and how the idea of of being this mercurial, liminal—I um, say this in quotation mark—effeminate self. He could not be that. Therefore, he had to perform something. But it was—it was—it was frightening to think that what he meant to be a man was to be a brick wall, was to be a wall of muscle, was was to perform, was to divorce yourself from your emotions and never show that. And he thought that that what that is what he was and who he could never be, yeah.
6: What's that? A script. You are an actor. In addition, tomorrow, mom usually cuts me, but
3: working. Now what? I won't get it. I've done it. The part. What's the part?
4: A black man.
6: That's it. A strong
1: black man. <laughs> 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 you are overqualified. <laughs> uh,
3: why don't you think you get it? <laughs> I don't fit their idea of strong black masculinity What's your idea of it?
6: Uh,
0: I really I really love talking about uh how masculinity's like changed and how all these different factors like economic factors and social factors kind of contribute to yeah. our changing definitions of what a man is. Mm. I have to ask you, Yeah. How do you navigate your own sense of masculinity? Um, like, do you feel and I guess doing this play must have made you think about it quite a lot, right?
5: Yeah. Um I realised that I've been spoiled. I started working as a poet in two thousand and three. Um, which is what 15 years ago,, like 14 years ago. that's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, I'm used to standing on a rate on a, on a stage, in rooms, theaters full of people, just listening intently to me talk about being vulnerable in ways that lots of men just are not privy to. And I realized that when I was working as a play, that the reason why I'm never nervous about talking about being emotional or being vulnerable is because I've been doing that. People have been paying me to do that, you know. So um, I'm, I don't even think twice about being, being not stereotypically masculine because I have been for the last 14 years. And the reason why I'm able to work as an artist is because more and more people want me to do so. So whenever um, I'm talking to men and they're talking about the difficulties regarding things like that about being vulnerable or being open or being emotional with members of their family and I never ride shotgun and they say don't be stupid You can just be who you are because I know that they haven't have access to the life I have so I always start from that point of view and try and figure out you know how um, they can begin those conversations with their friends just ways that they can um, just yeah just let their guards
0: down in safe ways do you feel like a sense of responsibility about kind of telling a lot of these kinds of stories for the first time? Do I feel like a, s- a sense of responsibility? That feels like I'm putting a great weight on your shoulders. Yeah. So I'm sorry about that. But you've already done it, so it's fine. Yeah.
5: Um, my producer, Kate McGrath, said something really interesting. She said, only you could have written this play because all the things, the ac- you know, the, the actors and the characters experience, all the things I've seen you experience as I've known you. And um, I was, I was, I was, I quite, I got quite emotional reading that because she was completely, she was completely on point. She was completely true, but I had not I wasn't aware of that when I was writing the play. Um, I just thought it'd be really cool to see these things on the stage, and that was, that was my initial impetus.
3: Cut it down more, please. I want to look like a superstar
6: rapper. <laughs> you have grey hairs. I can dye it. Ah. <laughs> That's like women getting extensions. Hell no! In the heat of passion, you cannot pull her hair. Why would you do that to a woman? In my opinion, never do that. You are young, your opinion does not matter. <laughs>
3: One comedian said black women get
0: away with murder because DNA from their hair will be traced to a bald woman in India. I came to see the show, I think like one of the previews before press night. Mm-hmm. and I was really aware when I was watching the show that different people in the audience were reacting to it very differently. Yeah. Like certain things like really pop out to certain people and certain things like pop out to different people. Mm-hmm. How do you think different people in the audience view those stories? Through regards
5: to the audience, um, I don't think any one audience member gets everything. So I do really enjoy it when different groups of people pick up on different things. Um, but a friend of mine said that she sat and either side of her, there was a black guy from South London, she thinks he was Congolese. So he's, his, his country wasn't reflected on the stage. And beside her was a, I don't know, was a white, English man, I think she reckons the one is the 50s and what she, what she found really interesting is that they were responding to the same things they were kind of leaning and saying hmm and scratching their heads and and, and she had just never um experienced the play that had both reactions from men she thought were polar opposites of each other, you know, just speaking on a face value kind of thing, because for all I know, that white man might have grown up in Nigeria, and fight, you know, blah, blah, blah. But um, for me, that was really heartwarming. And I and I guess when I'm, when I'm seeing the play, I'm aware of that as well, knowing who is laughing to each other. But, but like I said, I don't think anyone would get to the whole play in its entirety. But I think there's a lot of light and air and emotion written into the play Um, that regardless of background, culture, etc., you can sort of identify with. Yeah, because though the themes are located in an African sort of cultural-specific bubble, I think they are ultimately universal, and people still get that.
0: Barbershop Chronicles is playing at the West Yorkshire Playhouse in Leeds until the 29th of July and returns to the National this November. When we talk about masculinity, and what it means to be a man, it's really easy to forget that it's filtered through the different cultural and social influences that make all of us who we are. Maleness is a shared concept, sure, but it's one that we all perceive differently. In Moonlight, the pressures of masculinity first appear in childhood. This is the time boys come to realise what a man is and develop a sense of how they do or don't fit within that idea. And as we grow up, it's common to try on different possibilities for ourselves as we settle on the person we eventually become. It's much rarer to try out different ways of being a man when you're fully grown. Unless, of course, you're an actor. Barbershop Chronicles is performed by a cast of 12 men. Actors in an all-male environment, embodying loads of different kinds of men. These guys are the perfect subjects to talk about what masculinity really means. So we went to have a chat with them. We snuck down to their dressing room before the show one night to ask them to explain what being a man to them is all about. We spoke to David Weber, Sule Rimi, Maynard Eziyashi, Peter Bankole, and Fizayo Akinade, who all share a dressing room. You'll hear all their voices mixed up together. Hey. Hi guys. Hello. So what, how long have you got with us now? You, how you have to disappear and start acting? About 20 minutes?
4: Yeah, about 20 minutes. Yeah. Amazing. And
0: what are you running off to do, are you do, running off to do warm up or like. Yeah. 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 How many of you are there in a cast? 12.
6: twelve. Yeah, 12. Feels <laughs> <was> like 30. <laughs>
0: Why does it feel like 30, How much of that is that you're all men in the cast? I don't
6: yeah, know. That's, yeah, um, Have you guys worked with all men before?
2: No, but I think it does add a certain. Um, Energy Mm. to the fact, you know, because um, just like I mean, just like the the show, the play, in a sense, you know, there's a lot of masculine energy that we can release Mm -hmm. without having to worry about. Tempering it down
6: at all. Yeah, yeah. it gets quite boisterous. I mean, even from the first day, the banter was quite harsh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for pe- I mean, for people that didn't know each other, people were just jumping straight in with yeah, that with yeah. comments. But yeah. we all took. Nobody got upset. Nobody. No, no, there was no crying. I don't think, I'm not not in public not anyway. People <laughs> yeah, have gone, yeah, to the, so <laughs> gone to the. Also, the, to the, cry, the <laughs> unifying thing
3: of not is just being male, but all of us being black men. Yeah, yeah.
6: yeah. yeah Because the there, there's a shared <laughs> experience
3: there. Yeah. That, um, if it was just twelve guys from different backgrounds, it it would still feel there'd still be a connection, obviously. But I think it, there's a there's a deeper uh, yeah. a deeper connection
2: yes. going.
4: A nice thing that connected us as well was like our experiences of barbershops and the, how those stories came together, and that was like a a nice part of the the bonding
0: sessions yeah. at first. Yeah. Did they want you to do kind of a lot of sharing as part of the rehearsal process? of, Experiences. Yeah, <laughs> we did a lot.
4: Yeah. 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 But which yeah. I loved. I mean, I, I loved all of that because I've, I've that got was, some crazy stories yeah, from barbershop yeah. experiences, yeah, Some,
3: some like, really cool improvs. We did around yeah. uh, several of Peter's stories actually yeah. <laughs> um, that was just really enlightening and sort of illustrated the way that men can talk about stuff that is difficult and mm. tricky and emotional and hard. With other men without feeling judged for it. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a sort of uh, an admission of hard truths that can be done really yeah. effortlessly Yeah. In a, in a space like that.
4: In a safe environment, in the barbershop, you're in a safe environment to share your, your innermost feelings and know that it stays with it. Well, to an extent, because I mean, otherwise I've broken that rule. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to say stays in the barbershop, but yeah, I kind of.
0: Here, that guys, room. I gotta tell you everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The
4: names were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah.
0: yeah. I guess in many ways like the rehearsal space that you've created for yourselves is, is a similarly safe space it sounds like yeah yeah definitely yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I yeah. have to
6: say I've never had so much fun in a rehearsal room though oh man like, yeah. it's been from day one like the like the, prese- the overriding memory from like the whole six weeks it's just pure laughter yeah and just like be- like belly paining yeah. <laughs> laughter yeah. like tears coming out of your eyes laughter yeah. and I guess that's I think that's probably well, it's definitely part of what's really sort of made us kind of connect on this show. More definitely. so than, for me, more so than on any other show that I've been on. I can't speak for everyone else. But.
4: Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah.
0: I have to hear specific stories, oh, it what, sounds what, like. From, I just feels like there's an awful lot of banter and you're being really polite and not telling me things.
4: Well, thing? what happens what? in the barbershop stays <laughs> yeah, in the barbershop, you know? <laughs>
0: I'm play. so ready
3: to divulge, but all right. <laughs> 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 One of the quiet. things
6: that brought us close together, I think, was was the, the relentless teasing. You know, you can't get away with anything. If you mess up a line on stage, everybody's taking a piss. <laughs> piss. Everybody, everybody, yeah. everybody. Yeah. Like yeah. people warm people up. Line, up. Yeah, and they you go, mimic okay. it for weeks. For weeks. You so now you know, we got about yeah. ten. No, 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 yeah, exactly. si- si- I think Cyril.
3: think messed up a line, and he said he's got a line that says "Money talks too much." Instead, he went "Money." Corpses, <laughs> like and now that's all we de- Every time he comes to that scene, waiting, everyone on stage has yeah, got yeah, a little yeah. glint <laughs> in their eye. <again. laughs> Do you remember? Do you least, remember? Do you remember? There's at least three
6: or four anticipated yes. corpses so, yeah. in the night every show. Absolutely. Every
0: show. The thing I wanted to ask all of you about is about acting and how you get to play lots of different kinds of men, right? Mm. You you are many different people in your life, mm. um, and I just wanted to ask how this show and the characters you play in this show, if they feel different to you, and how it fits into the rest of the roles that you've played before
6: that's an interesting one i mean there's like a great there's a great scene at the end of the play actually without giving too much away where like the guy who comes in um is a young actor auditioning for a part where the breakdown is they're looking for a strong black man and the the subject of that conversation is what constitutes um, you know a, that sort of pigeonholed description of what a strong black man is and um the beauty of this play is i get to show the different versions of strong black men that i've seen growing up like all the characters that i play i play three characters are all versions of people that i know from my past and they're also um, all men that I have thought were strong for individual reasons.
2: Also, also for me, what, what I think's really fun about it and interesting is the fact that often I think um, as a black man when you go into a space you're aware of your colour, mm-hmm. you know, and so you temper your uh, attitudes, your emotions to fit the environment. You know, you don't mean to, but you realise that, you know, in the same way that, you know, if you see a police car you don't start running down the road <laughs> furiously you you walk you know very gently you know um whereas be- because we've got a cast of 12 here so the character you- we're all creating you can make it as true mm. as you can as possible and i think that's what for me what really comes across in the whole piece you have these real characters and i find when i talk to a lot of people that have seen the show what they're impressed about is the fact that wow we saw t- you know 30 yeah different, different yeah, yeah, black, yeah, men, yeah, yeah, yeah. black men real yeah. black men on stage and i think that's yeah. for me what's really exciting about the piece but the problem has been i think for, for, for what well, i know i've certainly felt is yeah. that i've been unable to show that sometimes Absolutely. Yeah. you know Absolutely. you're, you're always
3: example yeah. obama was never allowed to get angry or raise his voice or because as soon as he did that he went from being president to angry black man yeah, michelle obama she couldn't lose her temper yeah, yeah. and it's the and it's, it's what you're saying they they had to temper themselves into this sort of presidential box and couldn't i mean you know there were people in his country being black people in his country being shot on a sort of weekly basis and you never once saw him lose his tech you saw him get upset but I bet behind closed doors he was furious, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? But he couldn't yeah. show that side to him. And what you're saying is absolutely right, that, that we, in this space, we are allowed to push those feelings to their maximum mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and without, without, a sort of without any barriers. And yeah, just yeah. go. There's,
4: there's something, what's, what's another element that's beautiful is that the characters are unapologetically yeah. yes. African. Yes. yes. Unapologetically African. There's yes. nothing watered down or diluted yeah. about the language the emotion and the expression. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what gives it such an authentic feel.
6: Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's probably important to say as well that our characters just happen to be black because the play, essentially the message that, it, that hits home at the end is that, you know, there's a joke that goes around about all these different tribes. It, it's the same joke, but they just keep changing the tribes and the background of these people. House man, man, normal man, sitting in a bar having drinks. Flies are buzzing around all over the place. Pssst. Fly in our land for Hassaman drink. Hassaman pours the whole drink away, orders fresh one, no problem. Then fly in that land for Yoruba man drink. But Yoruba man only pours half the drink away when the fly land. Then fly in that land for Igbo man
4: drink.
6: Igbo man, remove the fly his two fingers. Hmm? <laughs> Suck the drink,
4: come out. Come out. <laughs>
6: All right, go buy your own. But the message that we hope comes across is that actually everyone in their own differences are also kind of like the same, basically. We're all, you know, we
0: are all hail from Africa. We're all human beings. We're all, you know As you said, one of the one of the things that the play's about is is kind of people questioning what it is to be a man and the different ways you can be a man. I want to ask if there are any roles that you've played that have made you question your ideas of masculinity or what it means to be a man.
6: Who's to say what is more masculine, more feminine than, you know, these days. It's all like it's all a spectrum, really, regardless of what your gender is. Um... Female roles, Well like recently I played, I, I got I got to play a version of RuPaul in a in a in a musical called Prom Queen in the Vaults Theater, and uh, and uh, yeah, I spent the whole play in uh, four inch heels and in a long sequin dress and a lovely beautiful blonde wig, mm-hmm. and I gotta say I worked those heels, man, <laughs> I worked those heels, but it's like you know. It's part. It's part of the job. You draw from life. You draw from your experiences to whatever role it is. Um, however, you know. However, those experiences in your life have hit you. You interpret them and and try to adapt them as much as you can into whatever you whatever it is that you're doing on stage or on screen. i think It's interesting when
3: you, because as a gay man, it's the, the whole masculinity thing is 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 really interesting because you've got you know gay men that say, well, I'm mask, and you go, well, you're. What what does it even mm-hmm. mean? And I have these conversations with my friends and go, what does, what does it mean? What does it I, I don't understand what it means? Do you just mean that you're not an effeminate man? Mm-hmm. Is that all that means? Or are you trying to say that you're gay but not really? Like, what what is it? And so I think there's when when you when you take sort of masculinity generally, that's a sort of a little minefield. And then when you add sexuality into it it becomes a whole other little minefield and I d I don't think there are any sort of clean cut answers. I think yeah. Men and women, and men and women, and then they behave, think, act as they see fit. And I don't, I don't, I don't know if there's a.
4: I, I think the sort of rule book or the yeah. the, the, the boxes has been definitely gone.
6: It's, it's definitely the changed in did. this generation. Yeah. It's changed. Yeah,
4: in this generation, it's the idea of masculinity and uh, what masculinity stereotypically is. I think is fading more and more.
2: And what's interesting, I always found, I mean, um, when I was younger, I lived in uh, Nigeria for for a period, and is that it was common for men to hold hands. Mm. You know, if uh, a guy came over to my house or whatever, you know, he would sleep in the same bed. That was quite common, you Mm. know, it's different. It seemed to be something that was then pushed from the west and then yeah. through religion as well yeah, religion, where we religion, suddenly religion had to mark yeah. these things and say oh mm. is that what's going on mm-hmm. here so it's only Here, uh, I felt in the West that you know um, that I really found that exactly conscious. You know, if I go to grab my friend's hand when I was at school, he would have looked at me like, "What are you doing?" And that then made me feel like, "Oh right, that's something I shouldn't do." Right. Okay. So it's a falsehood
3: that that is, like, like Maynard was saying, given to you at a very young age, and there are, you know, men don't cry, men don't do this, men don't do this, and then when you do those things, and people people encourage it and go no it's all right it's okay mm. to cry you suddenly go oh and then that's that's at the point where your ideas of masculinity and gender that's when they start to change when somebody oh, yeah, goes yeah. the way you were told that that thing isn't okay it's fine to do you go oh and then suddenly you open up and yeah. suddenly your views your sort of um, your, your your your
4: opinions on it are are, are broadened mm. i think yeah it feels to me like that's really where where masculinity lies the idea of being 100% comfortable with who you are. There's no facades, there's, there's, no, um, there's no kind of like, massive sense of ego or anything blocking what's really going on. Just being completely open. If you're upset, you, you, know, you express that, you share that. If you're happy, you express that, you share that. That to me, in this day and age, feels like what true manhood is. Being honest with yourself, I'm with those
6: around you. <laughs>
0: That's the end of our episode for today, but thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, tell a friend. That's how we reach people. So do us a favour and pass on the good word. And if you happen to be in your podcast app right now, we'd love it if you could take a few seconds and leave us a nice review. It really does make a difference. This episode was edited and produced by the marvellous Emma Reedy and was scripted and co-produced by me, Sam Sedgman. Our executive producer was Kate Moore and our music was by Alex Painter. A huge thank you to Terrell Alvin McCraney, to the cast of The Barbershop Chronicles and to Inua Ellams. Follow Inua on Twitter at InuaElems and follow me, if you like, at Samuel Sedgman. The National Theatre is, you guessed it, at National Theatre. And you can also find us by searching for us on Facebook, on Tumblr, and Instagram. And let us know your thoughts on the show with the hashtag NTpodcast. We'll be back in a fortnight with our next show. Until then, goodbye.